Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from March 2015, Dana-Farber nutritionist Stacy Kennedy discusses the optimal diet for cancer patients and survivors and answers questions on the latest food fads and myths. Kennedy is board certified as a specialist in oncology nutrition through the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and is certified through the American College of Sports Medicine as a personal trainer and fitness instructor. Ann Dorr from Dana-Farber's communications department joins her for the conversation. Okay, Stacey, let's get started. First question, uh, can you discuss the importance of good nutrition before, during, and after cancer treatment, and does this involve all cancers? Yes, so this is a great question, Anne, and I really like it because it's so broad and applicable to so many people. Um, absolutely, nutrition can make a really big difference when we look at cancer prevention, so that applies to everyone, as well as helping to promote survivorship for patients who've gone through treatment and also helping to kind of reduce the severity of many cancer-related treatment side effects. So good nutrition does play a key role, but we don't have to strive for perfection. Little, small changes towards a healthy diet can actually make a really big difference. Great. Uh, patients often have trouble with appetite loss during treatment. Do you have any tips for patients who are coping with this side effect? Yeah, so appetite loss is, um, I would say that and fatigue are probably two of the most common symptoms associated with many different types of cancer treatment. So it's certainly not specific to one type of cancer. Um, and as far as the appetite goes, um, you know, sometimes chemotherapy can really affect sort of how you perceive or experience taste and hunger. And even other therapies like radiation, surgery can have an effect. So when it comes to appetite, you know, normally so many of us are trying to uh, limit our appetite a little bit, right? We see food commercials, people bring us food at parties, we have to control ourselves from overeating. Many times cancer patients have the complete opposite experience in those same scenarios. They can be really frustrating, hard for others to understand. So the most effective strategy for helping increase your appetite during treatment is actually to set and follow a schedule. So eating small frequent meals where you have an external reminder. So rather than like a, a nagging partner who is really trying hard, you can like set an alarm on your phone or on your computer to sort of go off and drive that internal hunger to kind of wake back up. So follow a schedule and allow yourself permission to eat small portions. Great advice. Okay, weight gain and weight loss are both common side effects of cancer treatment. What foods would you recommend for someone who is trying to gain weight, and then what would you recommend for someone who is trying to lose weight? Okay, so surprisingly, there are similar types of foods that may help in both scenarios. So a healthy diet can support your immune system, which is a big benefit in terms of just cancer prevention and survivorship overall. But when it comes to weight management, that small frequent eating schedule that we talked about is really, really important. And for someone trying to gain weight, rather than going for like high calorie junk foods, look for high calorie healthy foods. They will help you to feel well, more energetic, and keep your immune system strong as you go through treatment. So that would be things that dietitians love, like avocado, adding healthy oils like 
olive oil or walnut oil into your foods or, or salads and looking to fortify your food. So let's say something like oatmeal, right? We can add, you know, a healthy type of butter, but you can add nut butters. And that's a great way to increase the calories and protein. So I like to put almond butter, some fruit, some chopped up other nuts and seeds into my oatmeal. And that's a great hunger management tool for the person trying to lose weight. And it's a great calorie boost for the person trying to gain weight. Are these oils really, I've, they've seen the stores open up. Is this very popular and, and an easy way to put protein into your meal? So the oils actually put in those calories and the healthy calories. They're a, a type of a fat. The protein, which is also important, that's gonna come from other sources. So when you think of like the nut butter I mentioned, that has both the protein component that you're talking about and the healthy fats and the calories. Other good proteins would include kind of lean proteins like fish or eggs, but also things like uh, other nuts and seeds, beans, legumes like lentils are a great source of protein and fiber. So oils, just the calories. Yeah, oils and calories, but they have other nutrients. So they have other antioxidants like um, oils are kind of like fruits and vegetables. Like they're all good for different reasons. When we look at the plant-based choices, of course, there's a million details you can drive yourself crazy with online. You know, maybe you want organic, maybe you want it to be in a glass container. There are just so many different details, but for our purposes today, I think the take home is that a plant-based oil, like a coconut, extra virgin olive oil, walnut oil, they're gonna offer different benefits. So getting that variety, just like you want your variety of fruits and veggies, is probably a good strategy. Uh, what food should patients avoid during treatment? So this is a one that we get a lot. You know, a patient will come in and say, okay, tell me what I should eat. And then the next question is, okay, tell me what not to eat. And <laughs> the truth of the matter is that it's a very individualized thing. So one thing I love about being a nutritionist here at the Dana-Farber is that I can sit and talk to people and get to know them and get to know the details of their context. So I can really give them that advice. Um, but, you know, for everybody, generally speaking, for patients, certainly avoiding things that you find irritating. So if you have mouth sores, you're gonna wanna limit very acidic foods or very spicy foods. If you don't have mouth sores or reflux, you may not need to limit those. Um, but we all would benefit from limiting things like processed meats, excessive amounts of red meats, fried foods, kind of those you know common sense sort of processed junk foods. We wanna really limit those and make room for things that will actually give us some nourishment. Uh, what are your thoughts about a vegan or vegetarian diet? So that's another, another great, great question. Um, there's definitely a place to be vegan and go through treatment and get all your protein and iron. There's a place to be vegetarian. There's a place to just simply eat a plant-based diet. And I think that that's the part that gets confusing. So plant-based diet does not necessarily mean that you are vegan. Um, and being vegan means you're only eating plants, avoiding all animal sources. Um, for example, there was just a study that came out looking at colon cancer and found that those who ate a plant-based diet with a little bit of fish occasionally actually had uh, the lower risk for developing um, colon cancer. So when we think about what's best for patients, look at including more plant foods like fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains, legumes, but you don't have to do that exclusively, but you want at least half of your plate 
to always be those vegetables and plant-based foods. And some meals, you would want that for 100% of your plate. Uh, this question from a viewer, uh, you touched on, on this just a little bit, but during treatment, should I be incorporating vitamins and supplements into my regular diet? Great, great question. And again, it speaks to the importance of tailoring any kind of guideline, whether you're learning this from us right now, or you're reading online, or you're talking to your neighbor, um, you really want to go back to your dietitian and to your doctor with any of these questions because certain supplements are important and helpful. So some people need to take vitamin D, some people need to take probiotics, there are uh, magnesium sometimes if your blood level is low from chemo, but there are other supplements that can actually reduce the effectiveness of your treatment. So for example, taking high dose antioxidant pills during radiation therapy may reduce its effectiveness. Same thing for chemo. So you don't wanna be going through all of this and doing something that's inadvertently sort of compromising its success to some extent. One thing that people often are understandably confused about is, well, then I guess I shouldn't eat blueberries because those have antioxidants. And the issue and concern is just with supplements, which can be high dose, potent, and also to some extent, a lack of regulation. So we don't want you skipping those fruits and veggies. We want you picking those and asking your doctor about the supplements. Don't just start taking vitamins thinking they're gonna fill in the gaps. I was gonna say, that's so important because this yes. is something you don't want people doing on their own. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Uh, another viewer question. I am currently in treatment for ovarian cancer taking Avastin every three weeks. Should I take antioxidants and multivitamins? Ah, so that's a good one. Um, multivitamins in general don't necessarily offer benefits for the public at large. Having said that, um, there are instances and situations where a multivitamin might be helpful or your doctor might prescribe it. So, you know, for this patient, I'd really need to talk to them. I would prefer they get their nutrients from a well-balanced diet as kind of your main strategy, but your basic multivitamin or like a multivitamin for seniors tends to be safe during treatment, um, but again, you wanna explore that. And, you know, same thing for the other supplements. It really is gonna depend on a lot of factors. It's, it's hard to say kind of globally what everybody should take. It's more of an individual thing. Right. Uh, what are your thoughts about garlic? I know a lot of people love garlic, but then when they start on chemo, it's a taste factor. It's hard for them to continue with the garlic. Is there a way to get garlic benefits from someplace else, or is there a way to mask the garlic taste? Okay, so this is like a fun cooking tip. So <laughs> garlic has a lot of phytonutrients, which are compounds naturally found in plants that can benefit our health. So, you know, we're familiar with like antioxidants, but there's so many phytonutrients. So garlic has a lot of potent phytonutrients that can help support your liver and many other um, factors related to cancer prevention, survivorship. Um, but yes, garlic can often be a little strong or potent. Um, one tip for actually making garlic even more potent in terms of its nutritional benefits is to actually chop it up first. So I like to like smash it with the knife because it kind of gets the skin off and then chop it and let it sit because when the air touches some of those exposed phytonutrients, it can actually help increase their concentration. So it's kind of a fun cooking tip. Um, for garlic, I would say if the taste is a little too strong, definitely don't eat it raw. Um, try to cook it and maybe roast it and then incorporate it into uh, sort of a meal 
that once you've roasted it and kind of spread out the flavor a little bit. Um, but you know, garlic is one of many healthy foods. So if garlic just doesn't sit right with you or is not appealing, no worries. You have so many options in the plant world to choose from. Are there other foods that people not complain about but have trouble with during chemotherapy? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty variable, but I think um, extreme temperatures, extreme um, like spiciness, although spices have some pain relieving anti-inflammatory properties, they're really healthy. Um, they do tend to sometimes be irritating, especially if you know your mouth or your stomach or your esophagus is irritated. Sometimes citrus in large amounts can be bothersome. One of the biggest triggers though of nausea and sort of food intolerance is actually an empty stomach. So going back to our first tip about that schedule of small frequent meals, that's really important when we're looking at things like uh, nausea, reflux, and other symptoms. Especially taking medicine and... Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, so here's another viewer question. I am on chemotherapy and food I normally eat, as we just started talking about, is starting to taste weird and metallic. Uh, what can they do about this? I know you say mask it a little bit. So is, yes. is that true with big meals too? So, you know, for taste changes, again, they, they're different kinds. So, you know, if you're having trouble sensing taste or like taste acuity, we call it, there are sometimes certain supplements that may help. So talk to your doctor about that. Um, but giving more flavor. It doesn't have to be hot or spicy, just more flavorful. Um, also using kind of like tart, or sour flavors can help with some taste changes. So thinking of things like lime or cranberry or pomegranate, lemon, kiwi, those can be helpful. And then for metallic, it's really avoiding metal. You're just more sensitive to the metal that we don't normally pick up on. So that would include things like using plastic silverware instead of regular, avoiding anything in a can, um, don't use aluminum foil, really try to limit your exposure to food and metal touching each other. That's a good tip. Uh, just a reminder, we are talking to Stacy Kennedy. She's a nutritionist here at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and she's answering our questions about nutrition during cancer treatment. Okay, next question. Uh, I have HER2 positive breast cancer, and I have heard I should stay away from soy protein and soy oscillate. Is this true? And if so, what other ingredients should I look for on packages that would be similar? Great, great question. And we've done some really good research, some of it actually here at the Dana-Farber, debunking a little bit of the, the soy myth. So again, there are many layers to look at here. So one of the first things would be, absolutely, if you have an estrogen-related cancer, is to avoid um, those processed, more concentrated forms of soy. So like you mentioned, the soy protein isolate. That's something you can look for on a food label. So for example, if you're going to add a protein powder to your smoothie, choose one that's not soy if you have had a history of an estrogen positive cancer. Um, same thing for a lot of like nutritional um, products like protein bars are another common place. Um, certain meat-free uh, meats like certain types of veggie burgers or other um, foods that aren't actually meat may have that soy protein isolate. So that's a more concentrated source of the phytoestrogens that are naturally found in soy foods. So when we look though at actual whole soy foods like edamame, uh, tofu, um, soy nuts, those sorts of natural foods, the research actually doesn't support avoiding it altogether. You really don't necessarily need to. There's even research looking at how uh, miso soup may be beneficial during certain types of 
cancer treatment for even for estrogen-related cancers. So the idea is it's safe to consume whole natural soy foods in moderation. You want to avoid those processed, concentrated sources. Look for that soy protein isolate. Isolated soy protein is another way you might see it on the label. Um, but even breads will often have soy flour nowadays to increase the protein content. So you just want to be aware of kind of your total um, consumption of that. But you know, if you're at a friend's house and they have a beautiful salad and there's a little bit of edamame on it, you don't have to be afraid of it. You can definitely enjoy that and kind of benefit from the protein and fiber and other nutrients. I was going to ask you if you're, how big you're out at a restaurant. You can't. I mean, maybe you could ask questions, but should you not worry so much about a little bit on the side or? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, you know, when we look at nutrition and its effects, it's really looking at um, patterns of consumption over time, as opposed to like uh, one moment in time, this meal defines everything. It doesn't really work quite like that. Right. Um, but you should definitely ask lots of questions at restaurants. Um, if you have a food allergy, a food sensitivity, Many restaurants from a local mom and pop shop to a huge chain, they're much more savvy now and willing and ready and able to help you and address your questions. So I actually think the more you can voice your restrictions or concerns, the better. It's nothing, they're, they're used to answering those questions all the time. So it's yes. nothing you should be embarrassed about. Absolutely. It's so commonplace. My younger son actually has some food allergies. So, you know, I sort of personally deal with this all the time. Right. And I mean, we went to Disney World. We've been everywhere and, and it's great, you know, so definitely <laughs> speak up. I'm sure he'll start asking first, right? <laughs> no, he actually does. He's cute. It's five, he's five. It's adorable. <laughs> uh, speaking of children, what about our pediatric cancer patients? Are there certain foods you would recommend for childhood cancer patients and survivors? Yes, yeah, so you know, I think that's a great question. Another thing I want to point out too is that we have an amazing staff of Jimmy Fun dietitians. So these are dietitians that, like me, are um, experts in oncology, but they are also experts in pediatrics. So um, absolutely ask to meet with your PD oncology nutritionist. Um, but having said that, you know, kids are not little adults. They have their own needs for growth. So they're all the usual cancer survivorship principles that we've been discussing. So looking to include more fruits and vegetables, eat more often, get adequate calories that are healthy, get enough protein. Um, but kids will have other specific needs. So you want to kind of approach it from a health mindset, but you want to investigate specifically based on their age and their development status, you know, sort of the details of what they might need. Um, childhood cancer survivors, however, as they grow into adults, um, especially like in their 20s, you know, you're kind of making your own food choices, are sometimes at risk for developing other types of cancers or developing other health um, problems like diabetes and heart disease, whether it's because of treatment or just because, because, because you're an adult and everybody's kind of at risk for those things, you know, in our culture. So, you know, looking at exercise, weight management, and healthy diet is absolutely important for uh, survivors of childhood cancers. And mom and dads and other caregivers of pediatric cancer patients should be really really knowledgeable, especially because they're not, they're not applying what they eat. They have to worry about somebody who's not as tall and heavy as they are. Right, exactly, exactly. I think, you know, kids kind of, you know, and, and kids aren't always going to, or adults either, you know, they're not always going to eat everything you like want them to at that moment in time. But just in general, in terms of like encouraging healthy eating in your kids, being a role model is the best way. There's a lot of research showing that even if kids aren't necessarily making those choices for themselves yet, the exposure to their parents 
eating fruits and vegetables and eating healthy can actually translate to impacting their choices later in life. So it is important to kind of, you know, be the change you want to see in the world right there at your own uh, kitchen dinner table. Okay, another question from a viewer. I am a survivor of childhood stomach cancer and I've now developed diabetes. Do you have any tips for maintaining a nutritional low fiber diet with somebody with diabetes? Okay, so that's great. There's like a multi-part, you know, <laughs> question in there. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so a low fiber diet is something that many people need to follow. So other um, conditions where we see that in cancer survivors are, for example, women with ovarian cancer are sometimes at risk for bowel obstruction. And so we want you to get your phytonutrients, but we want you to limit your roughage fiber. So there's a balance there. So for example, thinking of sort of uh, lower uh, insoluble fiber, like that roughage part in terms of vegetables would be like roasting vegetables that are softer. So like you could roast, you know, carrots and mushrooms, sweet potatoes, butternut squash, those kind of vegetables are often um, suggested and well tolerated by people who need to follow a lower fiber diet. Another option is if you have a juicer, the juicer takes out the pulp or the roughage or the insoluble fiber. So that's another way that you can um, add in some vegetables and a few fruits to your diet that you may not be able to tolerate as well, you know, kind of eating them whole, sort of by themselves. Um, and then another component to that, however, um, is the, the diabetes part of your question. So, you know, um, for diabetes, we wanna, again, small frequent meals, kind of a broken record on that one. <laughs> um, having a representative from the protein family every time you eat is important too, because we, uh, protein basically is like a time release capsule for your carbohydrate. So having protein with your carbs can help you um, absorb the carbohydrate a little bit more slowly so you don't like spike your blood sugar and have it crash. Right. So an example of that, you know, that would be lower fiber, I guess, would be like a banana, some banana slices with a little bit of a smooth, um, like an almond butter or a smooth peanut butter. So because the nut butter is smooth, there's a little bit less fiber. And because you're having it with like a lower fiber fruit, like a banana, but you've got that protein with the carb. Um, another component that would be helpful would be to, you know, limit sort of refined sugary uh, drinks. So, you know, many kinds of like bottled juices that are higher in sugar, have added sugars, a lot of processed white flour that might be lower in fiber, but not so great for the diabetes part. Right. I guess maybe this I should ask you, what about sugar? Is sugar just something they should stay away from? So this is like, yeah. it's like asking me my political <laughs> viewpoint. Um, yes, it is sugar and cancer is like a really uh, hot topic right now. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of research emerging about it. Right. And I think the, for the purposes of the time we have today, I, we could spend the entire web chat on sugar <laughs> and cancer, um, is the take home message is to really honestly think about moderation. You know, the typical American diet is just way too high in processed sugars and very deficient in natural, healthy, unprocessed foods. So it's not just uh, the presence of a ton of sugar, it's the absence of things that are nourishing too. So there's a little bit of both sides there. Um, having said that, there is data that for certain types of cancers, excessive sugar intake may be problematic in terms of um, looking at you know cancer incidence and cancer you know survivorship. So there are certain cancers it's it's really uh, more of a focus. But I think in general we don't want to 
um, avoid fruit altogether. That often poor fruit gets blamed for you know being sure. a candy bar, and it's totally not. Um, there's fiber, there's phytonutrients that affects your sugar absorption. But if we look at your balance of fruits and vegetables, we do want more vegetables compared to fruits. And we don't want everything to be sweet. So even artificial sweeteners make you sometimes, may make some people want things more sweet, may have other uh, risk factors as well too. So like if you drink tea, try to just drink the tea. If you use um, a whole packet of sugar, cut to half, cut to a quarter, try to get rid of it, maybe do a drop of honey. Try to look for more natural sources of sweetness, like adding a mashed up banana into your oatmeal instead of brown sugar. Things like that where we can kind of cut our excessive sugar intake, um, but at the same time not feel so stressed and drastic that you have to 100% have a zero gram sugar diet because that, that's a really uh, tough space for people to be in. Do you find that um, uh, pedi uh, moms and dads of pediatric cancer patients uh, struggle with this a lot and ask you these questions a lot of times more than the adult patients or is it probably even? I mean, I would have to say in all honesty, it's pretty similar. Wow. I think people feel more comfortable asking when it's about their kid. Right. Um, but you know, kids like fruits and vegetables too. So poor kids get blamed for having right. these horrible diets <laughs> and they're really learning from us. So, you know, I, I think that, um, yes, you know, uh, people do ask a lot. Some people find, um, you know, sometimes during an infusion, they get a really bad taste in their mouth. Um, from the chemo and sometimes people like to suck on like a hard candy and then they feel bad about it and you know again we've got to look at this in the big picture it's not like you know it's your birthday you have a small piece of cake that's not what we're talking about it's looking at every single day what is your like cumulative sugar intake and what are the kinds of sugars that you just don't need they're not necessary and I feel like you know whether it's for a child or for an adult you know that's really more of the place to begin making your diet healthier uh, this Justin what are your thoughts on coffee and caffeine as part of your diet okay so um, yes yeah, so that's a that's a great question caffeine needs to be metabolized by your liver and so do a lot of drugs so there is this idea that if you're having again an excessive intake of caffeine that may not be great for your body's whole sort of system of keeping itself healthy and well and clean and, and, and you know, functioning properly. So there's sort of that. But, you know, one or two cups of black coffee or like green tea is not necessarily a bad thing. It depends on the type of cancer you have. It depends on your symptoms. Uh, coffee is pretty bitter. So a lot of people just don't like it. It doesn't sit well with them during treatment. Um, but it's also going back to the sugar, it's like what are you putting in your coffee? If you're adding in lots of cream or half and half or non-dairy creamer processed Mocha stuff right? yeah. or yeah, or like crazy amounts of sugar, right. then you know, coffee's not the same. Coffee's not always coffee. You know, a small cup of black coffee is certainly different. There's antioxidants in coffee. There's research showing that women who drink some coffee may have lower rates of breast cancer. There's evidence about green tea having um, different antioxidants and properties like anti-angiogenic properties, things that may help um, tumors, you know, prevent them from making their own blood supply. So there, there are, they're natural plants, so there's room for them, you know, in moderation and sort of just natural without a lot of additives into your cup. I think that's the safest way to go about it. Just be careful what you put in it. Yeah, pay yep. attention to that and, and don't feel like you have to wake up tomorrow and change everything overnight, although you can, but 
what's more successful long-term is like a gradual process that you feel comfortable with. Do you try to tell your um, patients to substitute like maybe water and lemon or something other than coffee or you, you, you try to wean them off slowly? Well, it, it really depends. I mean, caffeine is an appetite suppressant. So going back to that question about if you have a poor appetite and you're the type of person who's like at work all day busy, drinking coffee all day long, not stopping to eat and suppressing your appetite, you're just never gonna catch up for your nutritional needs to support your immune system during treatment. So it's looking at the context, um, but hot water with lemon, and you can even add fresh ginger to that, is so healthy. It's really, really good. It can help fight nausea, taste issues. There's so many phytonutrients in lemon and ginger. So that is a wonderful substitution. But again, you don't have to look at it as, as all or nothing. You know, if you drink 20 ounces of coffee, maybe four or eight, you know, becomes your new norm. Right. Uh, this viewer writes, I'm finding it hard to keep up my energy during cancer treatment. Are there diet changes I could make to help give me an extra boost? Yes, yeah, so fatigue is, is one of the most common side effects of cancer treatment and just our busy lives in general. Um, so one of the things you can do is eat nutritious foods that are plant-based, often in small amounts throughout the day. Hydration is super important for fatigue and often water doesn't taste good, so you might wanna um, add in like fresh lemon, lime, orange. You can make infused water, so like take a pitcher of water and put in anything from cucumbers and mint to strawberries and cantaloupe and just let it sit. You can even purchase water bottles that have like a, a hole in the middle where you can put your fruits and your herbs and they'll steep into the water while you walk around. Um, but hydration is very correlated to fatigue. So, um, and if, you know, it's hard to get those fluids, try to be more of like a multitasker with your nutrition. So like if you make a smoothie or you have a soup, you can get hydration, protein, phytonutrients, fiber, fruits and vegetables, energizing foods all in one package. The other piece is increasing your intake of plant-based foods. Those can absolutely help boost energy and reducing your intake of high sugar processed foods, which can kind of zap your energy. Do seltzer waters count? Because they've gotten so popular. You know, they have and they're all different. Some are pretty clean, some have additives. You want to read the label. Some people don't tolerate the carbonation very well. Mm. Others find it helpful. So you really kind of have to look at your own context with that. Um, but sometimes that carbonation, if you're having like gas or bloating or stomach upset, that extra air isn't really going to be as um, beneficial. Uh, this next question is from someone who has had breast cancer surgery a year ago. She is currently on tamoxifen, but is finding it hard to continue to lose weight after initially losing 10 pounds. She says, Stacy, help me get unstuck. Okay, awesome, <laughs> awesome. Well, come in and see me and we can really help. Um, but in the meantime, for everybody out on the internet, um, you know, one of the one of the great things um, that we have is our is our Dana Farber app. So we have a free nutrition app, and in the app you can look for recipes, and they're all tagged. So you can go in and look for like low calorie, high fiber, high calorie. You can search, you can build shopping lists, and all kinds of fun stuff with that. We also have an Ask the Nutritionist section, and we've gotten so many questions just like this one. You know, I'm stuck, how do I lose weight? So those are some additional resources. Um, one of the things is to 
really look at your diet and make sure you're not being too restrictive. We don't want to restrict on the good stuff. So increasing your intake of vegetables and fruits, eating more often, and hydration. Hydration is kind of an unsung hero when we look at metabolism and weight loss and even food cravings. Many people find they crave more sugary foods or salty foods when they're not hydrated enough. So dealing with some of that can be as simple as drinking more water. Um, but I would really look to um, have that more frequent eating Definitely exercise, especially for breast cancer survivors. But cancer survivors overall can really benefit. Exercise can help your immune system, but don't overtrain. So just like eating, it's like that balance. So um, looking to be physically active, you don't even necessarily have to go to a gym. Um, when the weather is better, you can walk outside <laughs> like today um, or other times. Even just doing some simple exercises at home. There are a lot of great resources online, you know, 15-minute yoga videos that you can watch, things like that. But making sure you're not exercising so hard that you're driving your appetite and then eating more and sort of in a way sabotaging that weight loss. Right. Okay, next question. My husband was, this is a caregiver question. My husband was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2014. He will be starting radiation soon, and I'm feeling overwhelmed about what to feed him or what foods to buy. Um, this is a great caregiver question because I know so many yes. people get so stressed out and, and so worried about it. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's good to kind of start with where are you guys at now? What are some of the foods and the meals that you currently enjoy, and how can we maybe elevate those to being even healthier? So we want to add more of those phytonutrient-rich foods, more of those protein-rich foods, into your eating plan. So everything from different nuts or seeds, whether it's like as a snack or on your salad, lots of fruits and veggies. Um, fatigue is a very common side effect of radiation. So again, being hydrated, eating more often, going for those nutritious snacks, like grabbing an apple instead of a cookie, things like that can help. And I think, you know, for the caregivers and, and for the patients, but you know, one of the challenges is it's, it's not necessarily a challenge, it's something you can embrace. So people are, you know, offering to help. Many times I hear this from patients or, or really from the caregivers, you know, our friends, our neighbors, people from our, our church or other people that we know, they really want to help, they want to bring us food, but they're bringing us foods that either the patient has like an aversion to or they're really heavy. They're bringing brownies and cookie trays and they're bringing, you know, uh, lasagnas that don't have any vegetables and just are really heavy and hard to digest. So. One of the things I suggest um, is actually like using our app as a tool for all those people who you really want to let them help you. It's, you know, it's kind of not fair to take away that opportunity for them to help. Um, and you can really benefit. It's busy. You know, the caregiver driving her husband to radiation, you got to drive your husband to radiation every five days a week. I mean, it's a full-time job going through cancer treatment for the caregiver and for the patient. It's really overwhelming. So you, can, you could have him, and she can help, go through the app, pick the recipes that sound good, and you can actually share them with these people who want to help. And so you can be a little bit more directive in a very sort of um, kind and appreciative, grateful manner. Um, and I think that that can make a big difference because when you're fatigued and when you're the caregiver who's also very fatigued, it's the planning and preparation that can make all the difference. Even back to that question about being stuck with weight loss, it's planning and preparation. So if someone's willing to go to the grocery store and get you some produce, great. You know, at night, pack up a little bag so that when you leave your house to go to treatment, you've got your healthy snacks ready to roll and with you. You can make smoothies ahead of time. You can put them in the freezer. 
and then grab and go and they'll defrost and you can enjoy them. So I'm really a big fan of for caregivers to make their life easier. That like process of like an assembly line or batch cooking like on the weekends or when you have more time to make both of your lives easier and then also kind of have more of that assurance that the patient is getting all of the nutrients they need and I just have to add in for the caregiver too, it's like, you know, put your oxygen mask on first. That is a huge part of all of this. You're just at risk of being fatigued. So let's, you know, bring a smoothie for the patient, but you should bring one for yourself too, and you can better help the one that you love that you're caring for. That's a great line too. Um, I think a lot of these people have great intentions, and I think they want to be told how they can best help. So you shouldn't be worried about how they might feel if you're like, well, the lasagna was good, but I, what we really need is for you to bring us you know, juice or whatever, something else. I think that's really important because they, they want to be told how to help. Absolutely. <clears throat> and you can also blame it on me. Blame it on us. <laughs> Say, my nutrition, this was awesome, but next time when you bring us some lasagna, my nutritionist said <laughs> that we need to have more vegetables and we need to have a little bit less cheese so it's not so heavy and it's easier to digest. Right. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll take the blame for you. <laughs> Uh, what about recommendations for patients who have had trouble chewing or swallowing? We touched on this a little bit. Um, this patient, I hear from many patients about the side effect during treatments with the uh, problems, chewing or swallowing. I think for hydration, too, this might be um, troublesome. Absolutely. And, you know, there are many resources here at Dana-Farber. We also work closely with our speech and language and swallowing pathologists. So that may be a resource at your cancer center as well. Um, I would say absolutely invest in a blender. It doesn't even have to be expensive or fancy. But for anyone with swallowing problems, if you have a blender, you know, you can really do a lot. You can have so many things because you can manipulate the texture. So having like soups that are blended, making smoothies, that can be really helpful and really important. Um, you know, one of the things for trouble swallowing is that um, there are a lot, of, a lot of different techniques and strategies um, that are important to learn. But for many people, it's easier to swallow something that's one texture. So like let's visualize um, like mashed potatoes, which could be as thick or thin as you want, or you know, mashed sweet potatoes or butternut squash, things like that. Or a soup, like a black bean soup that was pureed versus like um, chicken noodle soup, something you know, people are accustomed to hearing about. The soup that has pieces, like even like rice or pasta, it's harder for the muscles to grab. So even though it's soft, it actually can be hard to swallow. Um, so you wanna look for foods that have moisture, foods that are soft, but foods that are one texture or using a texture. So like, let's say you have like mashed up sweet potatoes and then you have other foods on your plate that might be harder to swallow. You can kind of like mix them up together if you're not opposed to your foods touching and you know, being all mixed up. You can kind of put those pieces of you know, vegetables or other things into the potato as like a vehicle. Um, but smoothies are, are a big help. I mean, I really do feel for most of our patients who have trouble swallowing, um, they're really important just because it, it's tiring. When it, you have trouble swallowing, it's, it's hard to get enough um, of the nutrients that you need during treatment to support yourself. So having something where you can pack in, you know, five or 600 healthy calories and, you know, 20 to 30 grams of protein and tons of vitamins and minerals through natural foods in one, you know, shot, you know, kind of a eight to 16 ounce glass, that's gonna be so much easier than trying to eat, you know, like a three course meal. Um, 
And they can carry it around if they had to. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. I really, it's like if you have kids, if you're a patient, if you're trying to lose weight, whatever your goals might be, carrying food around, like just stop any dietitian and you will see some kind of food or drink in their lab coat. <laughs> Uh, we talked about green tea a little bit and its benefits. Uh, one viewer, um, she'd like to know, is there a certain kind of green tea or is there a certain way that we should be making it to be beneficial? Sure, so that's a great question about green tea. Green tea um, is very healthy. We mentioned earlier there's a lot of um, immune-supporting, cancer-fighting properties. And the research, though, you don't necessarily have to drink it all day. You could have one cup, two cups, maybe three. Um, but you want to think about the caffeine intake, too. You know, so caffeine's a stimulant. It might keep you awake. Um, caffeine is about, you know, it's about half the amount in green tea compared to um, coffee. But look for just a, a basic green tea, you know, a natural, healthy, you can get organic tea, you can get loose leaf, you can get tea that's in a bag. There's so many options. I think that it's a matter of looking at the flavors that appeal to you. So if green tea itself doesn't taste so great, maybe squeeze a little bit of lemon into it. That's going to have some of that added anti-nausea benefit. Um, so in temperature sometimes can be bothersome. Um, if you have like a sore mouth, if you have diarrhea, you want to kind of limit extreme temperatures. So maybe have like a warmer cup of green tea as opposed to a scalding hot cup of green tea, um, which could burn. Uh, what diet recommendations would you make for someone who is preparing for surgery? Yeah, so for surgery, one of the big things is actually definitely talking to your surgeon about your supplements. They'll more than likely want you to stop all of your supplements about two weeks before treatment begins, um, or sorry, before surgery is scheduled. Um, and that's really important because many supplements, um, you know, we mentioned things like fish oil or garlic, or, there's so many that actually can have a side effect of being a blood thinner, and that's risky during surgery. So stop your supplements, but talk to your doctor. You may not need to stop them all. Um, preparing for surgery, we know that people who go into surgery better nourished have better outcomes, meaning shorter hospital stays, less risk for infection, faster recovery time, less chance of complications. So you can really help yourself by doing a little bit of like a nutritional boot camp before your surgery and really being on top of that healthy eating, having natural unprocessed foods, getting enough protein, fruits and veggies, eating more often, being hydrated, really trying to limit those junk foods in your diet as a way of preparing yourself. But specifically, protein is very important and so are certain immune supporting minerals that are important for healing and vitamins. So vitamin C rich foods, everybody thinks of the orange, but actually cauliflower this time of year is in season, very rich in vitamin C. Um, also looking at foods that are high in zinc, uh, selenium, like in Brazil nuts, other kinds of nuts and seeds. Those are things that you want to um, be sure to include in your pre and post surgical um, diet plan. So I was just going to ask you, post-surgery, is it much different than what you were just giving us recommendations for pre? I mean, overall, no, but yes for specific surgery. So there are actually a lot of very specific uh, restrictions and guidelines that patients having different kinds of um, GI surgery would absolutely need to follow uh, post-surgery. And some of those are like a transition. You know, you might start off with liquids and transition to softer, low fiber foods, gradually increase the fiber, perhaps go back to just, you know, a healthy, regular diet. Some people may have longer term restrictions. Um, so they're very detailed specifics depending on the type of surgery that you've had. Um, and again, though, that sort of small frequent meal, having protein with your foods, 
Um, those kinds of things can be really um, helpful, but you definitely want to talk to a dietitian, you know, post-op to find out based on your particular surgery, you know, do you have to watch out for fat content, fiber content, um, things like that. Uh, you talked about cauliflower being in season. What about when veg uh, vegetables and fruits are not in season? What about frozen? Yes, yes. So in this winter, oh my gosh, it's like yeah. everything's <laughs> out of season. You know, everything's we're, frozen. Yes, yes, yes. We're our, our seeds are just sprouting at home. We're, we're hopeful for a spring garden. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think that it's really um, kind of a common uh, myth that frozen fruits and vegetables are bad for you. So you know, on average, a fruit or vegetable will actually travel 1,500 miles from the farm to your plate. And this is interesting too, the definition of local is anywhere from four to 500 miles. So local eating is in reach for you know, many people. Um, so foods that are in season and local will be higher in nutrients because one of the things that degrades nutritional value is time and exposure to things like heat, light, and oxygen. Um, but, you know, when you're looking at something like, let's say, blueberries in the winter, you could argue pretty easily that frozen, organic, wild blueberries from Maine that cost, you know, $2.99 for an entire bag are going to have higher levels of cancer-fighting nutrients and immune-supporting nutrients than a container of fresh blueberries that have come from South America and probably cost $6.99. So economically, staying on your goal of eating a plant-based diet and nutritionally, utilizing frozen is very helpful. And frozen and canned are not the same at all. Frozen would be closer to fresh. Now having said that, you could go to the freezer aisle and find sodium-filled, you know, high-fat squash that's like totally not what we're talking about. When we say frozen fruits and vegetables that are healthy, we're thinking of those blueberries loose in the bag or peas loose in the bag or corn that's just itself, you know. Um, and that's a great option. I'm, I can't stress enough how, well, I don't need to stress it. Everybody knows how difficult it is to eat healthy. People are struggling. It's not information that we're lacking. It's really like the everyday execution. Um, so having frozen fruits and veggies keeps you on track with those health goals because it's there and ready to go and it doesn't go bad. You know, how many times do you look in your fridge and think, oh no, I bought this awesome broccoli and, and I haven't eaten it yet and it's gonna go bad. So when you have the frozen options, it's quick, it's easy, it's affordable, and you know it's there for those days that you just didn't have time to get to the store. But read the package. Yes, read the package, okay. yeah. Uh, here's a real hot topic, red meat. Okay. Can a patient or, sur or survivor of cancer have an occasional steak, or should they stay away from beef-type foods all the time? Okay, so uh, that is a, a really, really great question. So the idea in terms of the research is really limiting red meat. And again, that's kind of a vague term. It really depends. The average American diet is very high in consumption of, of red meat. So we want to limit our intake of red meat to be less frequent. So, you know, if a patient is craving uh, red meat or you want to have an occasional red meat, that, that's okay, that can fit. Um, but we can also look at the characteristics of that meat and make healthier choices. So you might want to look for a meat that is leaner, lower in fat. You might want to look for one that's grass-fed or that could be local perhaps or organic. Those, you know, details aren't all necessarily backed up by tons of research, but they can help people make a choice that they can feel better about. But limiting your red meat is tons of research supports the importance 
of that, but for an individual, that doesn't necessarily mean eliminating. Um, it's really kind of a contextual type of a thing. But we want to keep the intake low. Um, many, many recommendations are, you know, to, to limit that. People eat, you know, you can eat like your entire week's suggestion of red meat in one day, depending on, you know, the size of the steak you order at the restaurant. So. Right. <laughs> uh, this is from a viewer. Can you discuss the concerns regarding plant estrogens and breast cancer? Yes, so when we were talking earlier about those soy protein isolates and isolated soy protein, those are the phytoestrogens, um, that processed concentrated soy that we would want women or anyone with an estrogen-related cancer to be cautious about and really try to avoid. Um, ground flax seeds is another source of phytoestrogens, um, but that kind of like natural soy foods doesn't necessarily carry the same risk um, but it's a bit unclear. So, you know, part of the issue um, with soy really was that it, you know, became popular in the 90s because we saw that soy intake in place of red meat was helping to lower the risk of um, heart disease. And so there were health claims that were approved for food packages and soy was kind of everywhere and then kind of took on a life of its own. And, um, you know, there's other concerns that people may have around soy, like if, is it GMO or organic, things like that. Um, but basically with flax, it's kind of a similar thing. Flax got really popular and then it was in everything. So you could be having cereal, chips, you know, ground flax, you could be having so much. So, you know, there was a paper that came out a couple years ago just sort of recommending that those with an estrogen-related cancer just use caution in the amount of flax that they may eat. Um, you certainly don't need to avoid it by any stretch. Um, but, you know, maybe sometimes you'll put like chia seeds in your smoothie or, you know, you can kind of switch it up. But if you go online, you'll drive yourself crazy. You know, you'll find out every vegetable has estrogen and, and it's just simply not, um, it simply doesn't really contribute significantly to any type of risk and now you're avoiding foods that we know are good for you. So it's really that soy protein isolate processed concentrated soy that you want to be most cognizant about. Uh, this from a viewer, would you recommend an overweight or obese patient to lose weight during treatment? Ah, so this is another good one. It really depends on, on the details of their case, um, but we call it clinically appropriate weight loss. So in many cases, yes. And that is not at all what was considered a standard um, approach by any stretch, you know. So um, absolutely for survivorship, we know that weight gain and obesity is a risk factor not only for developing certain cancers, but for hurting your survivorship um, chances. Um, and it, it may not necessarily be like a yes or no, will the cancer come back? It's more um, we've seen in certain cases that obesity can contribute to either a more aggressive type of cancer perhaps um, coming and looking at the time to onset, so when a cancer may recur. So like with prostate cancer, the, looking sometimes, research has shown some of the characteristics might be influenced from obesity and weight gain. So, you know, during treatment, we want to look at the details. So if uh, a patient is overweight or obese and, um, you know, has a significant amount of weight that would sort of generally be healthy for them to lose, how are they going about losing that weight? If they're not meeting their calorie needs, they're not meeting their protein needs, they're not eating, um, then that's not a healthy kind of weight loss at all. That's a risk of malnutrition, which can compromise your immune system, and we don't want that. But if somebody is meeting their nutritional needs, they're being more physically active, and they're simply making healthier food choices, and they're losing weight slowly, and we're monitoring their blood tests, we're working with their doctor, then yes, absolutely, especially for like a younger uh, patient who 
you know, has a long, healthy life to live, we do encourage them to go about gradually losing weight in a clinically appropriate way through making healthier choices. Uh, a lot of your good tips today uh, involved a lot of research and, and the need to plan. And a lot of people will get a lot of this information off the internet. Are you, are, do you recommend going on the internet or do you have certain internet sites that you recommend? Or? So yes, I mean the internet can be really helpful and really stressful. <laughs> um, so I, I think that one is that you want to have that trusted advisor. So if you have the opportunity to work individually with a, a nutritionist or an, a cancer um, dietitian specializing in oncology, then you have someone you can bounce these things off of. Um, but yes, there are many reputable great sites. So here at the Dana-Farber, we have our Dana-Farber nutrition website, we have our app, we even have links to other really helpful sources of information on nutrition and cancer right from our own website. Um, certainly like the National Cancer Institute, American Institute for Cancer Research, American Cancer Society, there are so many great resources um, for patients and the general public to use, but you do want to kind of have that lens of uh, sort of a discerning eye when it comes to some of the information and have someone that you can bounce it off of. And that was really our goal in developing the Ask the Nutritionist, is that not everyone has the opportunity like the Dana-Farber cancer patients do to meet with someone one-on-one. -on -one. So use that um, Ask the Nutritionist library to look up your question too, and perhaps you'll find more information there. And a viewer wrote in again about the vegetables, trying to incorporate vegetables more into the diet. That's probably a big thing recipe-wise. I, I bet they get a lot of help going on, uh, asking you how to incorporate by becoming a better cook or, or looking at better recipes or different recipes to try out. Absolutely. I mean, the internet is a great place for, <coughs> excuse me, we're looking at new recipes, getting new ideas. There are so many uh, beautiful pictures available for yeah. You know, recipes and ingredients. So yes, in that sense, um, going online can be really helpful. Just be wary of, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, if somebody's making like a really uh, strong health claim or suggesting like a supplement, like a powder of something, you know, you want to run that by your team. But yes, looking for ideas to integrate more vegetables into your diet, uh, the internet can be really fun. I mean, you know, this month our, our nutrition uh, website recipe is actually a brownie recipe with walnuts and believe it or not, black beans. Um, so, you know, there's all kinds of interesting stuff and creative ways, but I even like just any simple thing. Like if you're making um, an omelet, let's say, or you know, you're making like a frittata, you can load in tons of veggies from your freezer, you know, fresh vegetables, and just the more the merrier. So soups are another good vehicle, really looking at foods that you're already eating that you might be able to add more vegetables. So, you know, on, on St. Patrick's Day, we make, uh, you know, of course we make mashed potatoes, but I turn them green by using kale, <laughs> and they actually taste good too. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that you can, you know, get creative. Uh, because we can't follow every rule as far as food or drinks or what we should do, what is a must in a cancer patient's refrigerator um, or cancer survivor refrigerator? What should we absolutely have in there? Okay, so hopefully I don't have to just pick one thing because that would be impossible. <laughs> a couple, couple things. Couple things. things. Okay, so water <laughs> is going to be one. I would say uh, lemons um, is going to be an another one that I think would be really important. Um, and just produce in general is going to be great. And 
uh, I would say nuts and nut butters, which will actually stay um, potent longer if you do keep them in the fridge, um, would be helpful. Something that's really kind of energizing and packed with nutrients that you can just have on board. Great, great tips, Stacy. Thank you so much. This has been Dana Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dana Farber nutritionist Stacy Kennedy. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org/podcasts.